This is Salt and Spine. I feel like especially nowadays we live in a world where we're constantly pressured to go faster, uh, check things off our list. The more we do, the more we feel fulfilled and useful in society. And Italians, I feel like they're completely unaffected by that. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Sophie Mincilli. Now, today, Sophie leads food tours around Italy with her mom, cookbook author, and previous Salt and Spine guest, Elizabeth Mincilli. Together, Sophie and Elizabeth guide food lovers through Rome, Umbria, Puglia, and other Italian destinations. Now, growing up in Italy with a cookbook author as a mother, Sophie's life has always revolved around food. She left briefly for university in London, before moving back to Rome to devote her career to food. And now Sophie's out with her first book titled The Sweetness of Doing Nothing, Live Life the Italian Way with Dolce Far Niente. It's part cookbook, there are recipes, but mostly it's a guide to the Southern Italian philosophy of Dolce Far Niente and finding pleasure in the everyday. As Sophie writes, how often do you focus on being in the moment, doing nothing, whether it's sitting outside at a cafe, watching the world go by, willing away the hours with your loved ones, sipping a glass of wine or being immersed in nature at the beach, taking in the sun. These seemingly ordinary moments are the ones that bring happiness in the long run and highlight the joy in living. In today's show, we're talking with Sophie about growing up in Rome and Umbria, her career in food tourism and writing, and putting her, of course, to the test in our culinary game. Paid subscribers will also receive access to three delicious recipes from Sophie's book. Later this week on our Substack, you'll find recipes for Sophie's Amatricana and Carbonara, along with a fennel orange and black olive salad. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special content like essays, Q&As with chefs and authors, and author-read excerpts from the cookbooks we feature. And now let's head to our virtual studio where Sophie Mincilli joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, we are thrilled to have you. And I, I have to say, I think you are the first child of a past Salt and Spine guest that we've featured on the show. So we had your mother uh, a couple of years ago, and we're thrilled to talk with you today now. That's a nice first. Very happy. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we're here to talk about your your work and your your book, The Sweetness of Doing Nothing. But we always like to learn a little bit more about you first before we talk about the book. So I thought we'd talk about, you know, your life a little bit and your relationship to food and how you got to the place you are today. So um, obviously, if, if folks have listened to our episode with your mother um, and our conversation with her, you know, a little bit about her moving to Rome when she was a child and then spending her life there. And then from your perspective, you were born in Rome, right? And grew up there. Exactly. So when my mom moved here, she met my dad, and that's how I was born. Sure. So I was born and raised in Rome. And my dad's actually from the south of Italy, Puglia, which is the uh -huh. heel of the boot. And so I also spent a lot of time there growing up. And I moved away for college. So I moved for three years and I went to London because I decided I spoke English, so might as well move somewhere else and experience life outside of Italy. But yeah. I didn't love it. <laughs> I was there for three years. And after the first year, year and a half, I realized I really missed Italy. And that's where my heart really was. And I knew I wanted to move back here. So 
I think I moved back the day I graduated. I went to graduation with my suitcase and moved back to Italy. (laughs) And I knew I liked food and Italy. So then I just had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And luckily, my mom had started uh, leading food tours in Rome. And she asked me if I wanted to try and do one because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oops, my mom has gone completely crazy. <laughs> what is a food tour? <laughs> Who's ever going to pay me to walk around the market and eat pizza and pasta and learn how to clean an artichoke? And mm-hmm. she actually had to force me to try and do a first food tour. And I'm glad she did because I'll never forget. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And now it's been my full-time job for seven years. I love it. Yeah. Wow. And and when you were growing up, um, you had a, a connection to food, right? You were your family was very focused on food. Can you talk about you write a little bit in the sweetness of doing nothing about some of those early memories, including you write about your babysitter, Daniela, and you would have these long, slow breakfasts with her mother, like a lot of food memories for you as a child, right? A lot. But I feel like that's for everyone who grows up in Italy. I feel Uh like Italians are obsessed with everything and anything that has to do with food. It's all they talk about. But definitely when I think about my very Italian childhood in Italy, food comes to mind. And yeah, summers especially. So you mentioned my babysitter, Daniela. My parents would drop me and my sister, Emma, off at the neighbor's in the countryside. We have a house in Umbria, which is only like an hour and a half drive from Rome. So we would spend our summers there. And I guess my parents wanted some free time in the morning, (laughs) understandably. So they would drop us off at the neighbors. And it was just this family of farmers that I grew up with, basically spending my summers there and food was very important. And we would also go pick like wild greens in the field and go pick the eggs But also learning that the chicken that was making the eggs, that's also what we were eating for lunch some days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was really important. But I remember the most exciting part of the day there was choosing the pasta shape whenever we had pasta for lunch. That was, as a kid, the most exciting thing ever. Yeah, you were you were trusted to pick the pasta shape as yeah. a child. Yeah, that's so great. So you you mentioned you went to London for for university, and um, what did you study? Like, what were you thinking you were going to do at that point? I had no idea even before okay. starting. I studied communications because I thought it was the most general thing that would give me options later in life. And I guess it ended up being useful because I'm sort of working with communications now by leading tours all over Italy. And I also gave me a chance to work. My last year in London, I was uh, managing an Egyptian street food restaurant. And I also interned for a chef for a year. So I was working with food while studying. Um, But still, it made me understand that I missed Italy every day. I just missed the sun and the food and the people, everything. Yeah. It seemed like, you know, your mother kind of had to convince you to try a food tour and to get involved in the business a little bit, but it, it clicked pretty quickly. I think I recall from my conversation with your your mom, Elizabeth, that she didn't immediately work in food either. Was that kind of, did you see as you were growing up, like her as a food professional or like, was that a career path that you like saw and just didn't click until later? Or how did that sort of evolve for you to realize, oh, this is something I could do and partner with her in this way? Well, I guess I always saw her as a food person um, Uh because she's my mom and she cooked for me all my life. Sure. But 
I guess when I was younger, I always thought that if you wanted to work with food, it was either being a chef or like a waiter in a restaurant. I never thought there were other options, you know, and I knew I didn't want to be a chef because I liked eating. I liked people. I liked being outside. But I, I just when my mom started doing the food tours, it was a very new thing, which is strange because Italy and Rome, especially, is such a food foodie place, you know. Right. And it was so new that when she told me she was going to start doing food tours, I thought it was really, really weird. <laughs> I didn't think it was a real job. I remember even my father was like, this is not going to work out. What are you doing? And uh-huh. she told us, trust me, it is. <laughs> and it did. Now, me and my mom, we work together. So I lead tours in Rome, day tours, where I take people to the neighborhoods where I grew up going to. So all the small shops I've been shopping at since I was a kid. And then with my mom, we lead week-long tours all over Italy, which is very fun because it's a whole week of eating, drinking, and exploring. And um, yeah, that's really fun. I get along with her so well. I feel very lucky. So when did you decide that you would be interested in writing a book? And how did that idea come about? Well, I actually had never thought about it. I don't know. I thought writing a book was something you had to be a professional, you know, that's what you would have had to study in university. And Mm -hmm. I grew up with my mom who wrote nine books, I think, eight or nine books. I lost Uh count. Um, But actually, it was... It was a strange experience for me because um, it happened through Instagram. Instagram kind of changed my life. So I've been posting on Instagram for years now, and I film and photograph my life in Italy. Mm-hmm. And the people, and I, I film them and ask their stories, and I just document it through Instagram. And the publishing house actually found me through Instagram. And they got in touch and told me that they had an idea for a book. They had a name. And they thought I would be perfect. And they asked me if I was interested. And at first, I was about to say no, because in my mind, they thought, I've never written a book. I don't know how to write a book. Uh-huh. But then I remembered, actually, that was the one thing I was really good at in school all my life. And I actually really like re- uh, writing. And I have a lot to say about Italy. And so it was great because they gave me a ton of freedom. And I got to write whatever I want about my life in Italy and my experience growing up here. And also they used my photography, which was amazing. Yeah. So this was this the title that they had in mind when they approached you? The Sweetness of Doing Nothing? The Sweetness of Doing Nothing. Yeah. I love the title. And can you talk a little bit about what that means and how how that manifests itself so clearly in the Italian way of life? So the sweetness of doing nothing literally translates to dolce far niente in Italian, which is a word, a sentence people use to refer to the Italian lifestyle in general. But it doesn't actually mean that Italians aren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. I think they've just perfected the art of enjoying life and life's smaller moments and just taking it slowly. I feel like especially nowadays we live in a world where We're constantly pressured to go faster, uh, check things off our list. The more we do, the more we feel fulfilled and useful in society. And Italians, I feel like they're completely unaffected by that. I just thought of an example, like August is about to start here and people shut down their business or offices and shops for the whole month of August, which <laughs> might seem crazy in other countries, but here people 
I guess they just don't care. They want to enjoy their summer with friends and family and they want they dream of going to the beach all year and they know that's more important than one whole month of work, you know. Mhm. They save for that moment. Yeah, I mean it's really ingrained in the Italian way of life and of course the book is heavy on the food emphasis, but it it really touches on all sorts of Italian culture and family and friends and community how did was that part of the like vision that the publisher gave to you or how did you decide what the book would encompass and you divided into i think three sections food and then family and friends and then leisure yes so no they gave me complete freedom so that's okay. i guess when i sat down i was like okay i have to write a book about the way italians live and so i thought what are the three most important things in an italian's life and of course it was those three food uh-huh. is the first chapter and it's the biggest one because yes. <laughs> that is the most important thing in every italian's life yes. but also food connects to family and leisure time and it's just a very social way of living and uh food it connects it all yeah mhm and how did you feel about separating food from family because they are so intertwined and pulling those apart. I mean there's obviously it's very still connected in the book, but did you know you wanted to separate that a little bit too because there are certain practices that pertain to just community and friends and family? Yes. It was hard actually. No, nobody's ever asked me that, but it was very hard to separate <laughs> <Yeah>. the two. <laughs> I could I imagine. Guess, yeah, when it comes to family then I I tried hard to think about certain aspects that only relate to that like I talk about the figure of the mamma, the mom, and how that's like godlike figure in Italy. Right. <laughs> and um but then that was hard as well because the mom is also the queen of the kitchen here and right. everyone on the street is talking about whose mom makes the best lasagna. Right. Um but yeah, it was fun to sort of figure out how to separate the two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean everything comes back to food and and you write in the book that one of the reasons people in Italy are so obsessed with food is because it's so strongly associated with family and not just because that's where so much of the eating takes place and cooking, but because of the generational passing of recipes and things that really do become, you know, whose mama makes the best whatever, it really becomes part of a family's identity and traditions. Um is that something that you see still happening today? I mean, I know things have evolved so much with the modern society we live in and and things have shifted. Is it still very familial in that sense of recipe lineage and passing things down? Yes, and it's also very regional. So we still mm-hmm. very much eat what's traditional in our region. Right. Um so for example, where I live in Rome, some of the traditional recipes are carbonara which is a mm-hmm. pasta with the eggs the guanciale which is the cured pork and pecorino cheese and that's a dish that you won't be able to find anywhere else in Italy I mean right. you might but it won't be very good <laughs> right and uh, <laughs> that goes the same for like other region regional foods um so Italians are still very attached to that and i'm thinking like tomorrow i'm supposed to go out to dinner with a group of friends and we had such a hard time deciding where to go because every single person in this group of friends has a different 
you know, no, they don't make a good carbonara there. Oh, but he uh. makes really good amatriciana or he doesn't know how to do the meats. And everyone is so right. focused on the details when it comes to food here. And same goes with the family whose mom makes the best and they cook different things, you know, every day of the week. We still follow those rules here where it comes back from a religious uh, thing, like having mm-hmm. fish on Friday. Right. And if you walk around Rome on a Thursday, that's the day we eat gnocchi. So mm-hmm. all the restaurants will have a sign outside saying, today we serve gnocchi. And mm-hmm. that's, it's funny because Italians or Romans are so attached to that tradition. Yes. I love that it, it's still very prevalent. For people who have been to Italy, who are people who are not Italian and have visited to Italy, I think people see this this way of life so clearly. Um, and as you were writing this book, I think you wanted to impart some of that to people who may want to embody more of that spirit in their own lives, right? So throughout the book, you make suggestions for how to incorporate that mantra or that that way of life into your life wherever you are. The first one, which I love, is eat more pasta. Just right off, it has to be, <laughs> it of has course. to be eat more pasta. <laughs> um, can you talk about some of those suggestions that you have for, for people to incorporate um, that into their lives? Yes, I think it was like smaller things. So it's, you have to incorporate them slowly and one step at a time. It's not like one big change and you'll become Italian. But eating more pasta, I feel like because I work with Americans mostly, I've noticed over the years that they have this fear of carbohydrates and, Mm -hmm. you know, calories. And it's something that I'd never heard of growing up in Italy. Like it's never spoken of. It's just what we eat every day and it makes us happy. And if it's done well with good ingredients, it's, it's good for you. It's not bad. Right. And um, so I think that's why I wrote Eat More Pasta because as long as you're looking for the right ingredients and food, it's not bad for you. Also, we only live once, especially after this pandemic. Just eat that plate of pasta. The world isn't going to come to an end if you do. Right. Um, I don't know. What else did I write about? Because I wrote um, some tips yeah. at the end of each chapter, I think. You did, yeah. And some of the food ones are, you know, t- try cooking with the seasons, looking up oh. old recipes, making your own Sunday traditions, having a real lunch break, which I think in much of the world is not something that people do, especially in America. It's it's kind of um, celebrated if you work through your lunch break. So that was a big one, I think, for yeah, a lot of here. people. I think it's the complete opposite here. If an Italian has to choose between eating a quick lunch in front of their computer screen um, or not eating, they'll choose not eating at all. (laughs) Uh You'll see, it's funny. You really do see people sit down at restaurants for lunch and they'll take at least an hour break. And even if they are just eating a sandwich, it's usually sitting down far away from their work and chatting or, you know, just relaxing, actually turning off your brain from work. Right. And uh, that's one of the things when I was living in London that sort of shocked me in the beginning. It was a culture shock because (laughs) when I was doing some internships and my first jobs there, nobody was taking a long lunch break. And I was like, am am I weird? (laughs) Is this just something Italians do? (laughs) Where's my plate of pasta? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But also when I was a kid, people actually used to close their shops or offices and go home for lunch and nap. Right. And that's something that's slowly disappearing. But 
you'll see that in smaller towns, especially in the south of Italy, shops will actually close between 1.30 and 5 p.m. And that's because they go home, have lunch, and take a nap, which is uh-huh. amazing. That is amazing. Yes. You also, in addition to food, write about coffee, which, of course, Italy has a number of traditions and rules about coffee culture. Um, and you write that, you know, a homemade coffee in Italy is symbol of love, trust, family bond, and so much more. Um, but that it's really a thing that happens at outside of the house, that coffee is typically consumed at a coffee bar. Yes. So that's also a social thing. Like, mm-hmm. And that's another thing that shocked me, culture shock, when I went to the States, that when I started going to the States as a kid, and I would notice everyone walking around with a big cup of coffee and sipping it while they were walking or driving. And that's something I'd never seen growing up here. And especially people just don't do takeaway in general here, but coffee is always at the bar. A bar is a place where you go for coffee in the morning, but you also go for your lunch break. They'll cook something for you or in the evenings for a drink before dinner or after dinner. And coffee, like for me, it's, almost like going to my second home. I've been going to the same coffee bar for 30 years. And that's the same for most people in Italy. And it's not so much about the quality, but about everything else that surrounds it. So if I were to like be a trader and go to another coffee bar, everyone in the neighborhood would know immediately. (laughs) And they would start wondering why, what happened? (laughs) And I I could never. (laughs) So it's, And when I go there, I don't have to ask for what I want. They know because they've been seeing me every day for 30 years. And I have coffee standing up at the bar next to the same people I've been seeing all my life. And they know everything about my life. I mean, I walk in and they're like, oh, did you find the husband today? Maybe tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Italian. Of course. Yes, very Italian. The standing coffee bar is something that I think is um, is a new thing for a lot of Americans to experience when they visit Italy. It's not something that exists here. Yeah, I think it confuses people because our coffee drinks are a lot smaller. So you can actually just quickly stand at the bar and have it. And uh, it's either an espresso or a cappuccino, which is not that big compared yeah. to the coffees I've seen in the States. Right, right. <laughs> But yeah, it's fun. It's social, you know? Exactly. Are there things that you learned about, you know, Italian culture or your your life as you were putting this book together or things that surprised you? Like, oh yeah, that is a thing that is really ingrained in our, our culture. Not so much that surprised me, but I did realize that over the years I was living a less Italian way by being constantly in a rush and feeling like I had to work as much as possible and um, check those things off my to-do list. So writing about, because I was remembering about my childhood, you know, and the things I talk about on my tours and I tell tourists about. I was like, I used to do that stuff. Now I'm not doing it as much. Maybe I should go back to the way I was sort of living as a child. And so I think that's one thing that I learned after writing my book. Yeah. We're a show on cookbooks, so I always like to ask people if there are cookbooks that have been influential to you as you've, you know, become a cook yourself. Obviously, your mother has written a number of them, a number of cookbooks. Um, But are there cookbooks or cookbook authors that you really admire? 
Um, obviously my mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but one of my mom's dearest friends, her name is Evan Kleiman. And yeah. she, you know her? <laughs> I, I do, and yes. She's from LA and she used to have an Italian restaurant in LA. And she's like my aunt. She's family now because she's known me since I was a baby. And she wrote a bunch of cookbooks. And I just have like the best memories associated to them because even when I was a kid, I loved looking through cookbooks and hers were the first ones I would just look at over and over and over again. Sure. So Evan Kleiman, all of her cookbooks. Yes. Also a wonderful radio host now. Yeah. What do you think uh, makes a great cookbook? You know, I know there are recipes, a few recipes included in your book as well, and you've had exposure to many cookbooks. What do you think makes a cookbook great? Well, a few things. I love photography. So, of course, beautiful pictures is a first. I guess especially thinking back about when I was a kid, that's the first thing I would look at was the pictures. So they always had a huge impact on me. But also I like some personal stories in the recipes. That always makes it more personable, you know? I'm like, oh, I can relate to that. And um, I love vegetables. So vegetable-centric and pasta-centric cookbooks Uh are always my favorite. Yes. Before we end with our little game, I, I did want to talk about, obviously, you you work in tourism, you know, you give food tours, we've been through a really challenging number of years, and Italy in particular was hit quite hard with the COVID pandemic. How are things, you know, looking in terms of tourism and recovery? And why is it important for people to come back to Italy, or if they haven't been to come to Italy for for the first time? Well, they should come because Italy is amazing and you will be (laughs) eating a lot of great food. That's Um, a great reason, yes. (laughs) It was definitely very hard during the pandemic, especially because so many places in Italy rely on tourism. So it was sad to see people, I mean, including myself, like not knowing if tourists would ever be allowed back into Italy, if we were ever going to work again. And Italians are just such proud people. They love showing their food, their country, their architecture. So it was just sad to see people's, people just not knowing, being so unsure. Um, but Rome is crowded now. I feel like everyone Good. is in Italy. <laughs> yeah. Things are back to normal. If not, like I, I was trying to think if there were this many people before the pandemic or if we're just not used to seeing human beings anymore. <laughs> Right. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's a little jarring. It's jarring <laughs> to get back to normal, but it's okay. it's good to hear. Um, wonderful. Well, we always end with a little game. So we have our, our cards here that we work with. Um, and I thought we'd play a little game where I'll give you one of each type of card. And that's kind of the basket you have to work with. And you're making, you know, a nice lunch or dinner. And what might you make? And I can't guarantee that these are all things that you would normally cook with. Um, So hopefully we don't make it too challenging. (laughs) Um, So we have proteins, which are, you know, proteins, vegetables, flavors, which are spices and herbs and things. Uh, And then we have our secret ingredient deck. So these can be kind of more challenging or or just random um okay so i'll shuffle a bit and the protein we have is pork Mm -hmm. um you also have asparagus in your basket Mm. the flavor we're working with is cinnamon Mm. and the secret ingredient we have is kumquats 
which is the kumquat? Oh, the, the fruit. The, the small, <laughs> they're the small little citrus. You can, yeah, um, yeah. you know, eat the whole thing. Um, and you can also assume you have, you know, a, a, a nicely stocked pantry to support <laughs> <laughs> this meal too. So well, we have pork, asparagus, cinnamon, and kumquat. What might we make? Well, I need to admit that I've never cooked with cinnamon before. <laughs> oh, okay. I, yeah, I've actually, because I'm not a baker at all. And I feel like cinnamon, uh, especially in Italy, is associated with desserts and sweets. Sure. Um, but sure. the first thing I thought of with asparagus and pork is a pasta. Okay. Then mm -hmm. I don't know where I would put the kumquats. Maybe I would shave. Okay, so I would make a pasta and I would saute pork i would use guanciale which is a mm -hmm. cured uh cheek of the pig and it's sure. what we always have in our fridges in rome always and i would saute thin strips of that in a pan a little drizzle of olive oil and then i would chop off the asparagus in little pieces and add them to that uh, pan uh -huh. let them coat in the fat soften off a bit and then i would be cooking some pasta on the side drain it and add it to that pan with the asparagus and the guanciale mm -hmm. I would uh, add a little cooking pasta cooking water to it to make it creamy, some parmigiano, grated parmigiano. And then maybe I would use the, what do you call it? The rind of the kumquat, like chop it up yeah. thinly and add sure. it to that. I think it would be good. Oh, it would yeah. give it a freshness. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be great. And maybe you just gift everyone a cinnamon stick to take yeah. home <laughs> after the meal. <laughs> <laughs> to make their own dessert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what, what kind of pasta did you say you were using? Um, let's see. I would use a long pasta. So spaghetti, a long pasta, which is yeah. my favorite. Uh-huh. I think that's great. You want to do one more round? Sure. It's fun. Okay. <laughs> let's pick. Yes. I will say when we had your mother on the show, um, we, we had her in person and she loved these cards. She like yeah. sat through and looked through all of them for like half an hour afterwards. <laughs> I am it her was daughter. So <laughs> yes. Okay. So this time we are working with lamb as our protein. The vegetable we have are bell peppers. The flavor is garlic. That's nice. Mm. And our secret ingredient is eel. Have you ever cooked an <laughs> eel? <laughs> so eel, um, we actually do eat a lot of it in the south okay. of Italy, in Puglia, where ah. my dad's from. Sure. But we only eat it for Christmas. I've never cooked it because we buy it pickled uh -huh. and we eat it as a starter. But me and my dad are the only ones in the family that actually enjoy the flavor and consistency. So nobody else in the family eats it. Okay. Um, so I've only ever had pickled eel. So I would say if I was having a dinner party with these ingredients, I would buy that pickled eel and have it as a little starter for everyone. Okay, that's great. Because I have uh -huh. no idea how to cook with an eel. <laughs> sure. No, I think that's and, great. And then yeah. that leaves lamb, bell peppers, and garlic. Um. Well, Italian food to me is very simple. So mm -hmm. here in Rome, we eat a bacchio scottadito, it's called, which means uh, burn your fingertips lamb. Okay. And so it's the ribs of the lamb, which are grilled, and you sort of pick them up with your fingers and eat them. And that's why it burns your fingertips. Uh -huh. And so I'm imagining a plate with the lamb that burns your fingertips and then as a side dish i would just cook the bell peppers in a pan with a lot of olive oil and garlic uh -huh. and i feel like i would add mint to it mm. and that would be yeah. a side dish 
Yeah. And that's simple Italian meal. That's actually something you would eat in Italy. Yes. Very Italian. Very simple. I love very. it. <laughs> well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us. It was so fun to have you. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. There you'll find three featured recipes from the sweetness of doing nothing. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.